Hey, everybody. Um, If you're new, I don't normally preach sitting in a counseling chair or something. Um, I've had a really bad stomach flu for a couple of days, and um, my, between myself and my two older daughters, we've lost a collective 35 pounds in the last month, all from sickness. And so uh, you can pray for us if you want. Uh, that'd be great. So I'm just going to do this to reserve a little energy. Um, if, uh, we had the India banquet last week, and if you were there, thanks for coming. Um, if, and you can, remember, you can still turn your pledge cards just out here at the thing. That night we raised $10,000, which was great. Um, yeah, it's really good. But, um, but as I said that night, what, what ministries like, uh, like Redeem India need are long-term partners. And so if, you, uh, if you've been praying about that and you fill out the card, you can drop it off just in the thing. So we're doing this series called Substance. Um, based on a book. If you haven't got it yet, you can still get it out, um, out here. And it's about um, becoming people of substance. Um, the language from Isaiah 61 is that God would make us oaks of righteousness and to bring in Ecclesiastes in a world of vapor, right? And um, the way we, we came at this, and the way I come at this in the first chapter of the book is that for a lot of Christians and a lot of people, we feel these frustrations, these, these, just these problems, these things that we just hate about our lives, and we're, they're very frustrating. And one of the things that we talked about is that, that um, what the Bible calls worldliness, or what it calls um, serving the God mammon, which is basically everything that isn't conscious of God in his ways, in his Christ. It's that realm of things. Um, it, it produces in us these certain things. Like Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. If you try, you're going to serve one and really despise the other one. Or you're going to be devoted to one, you're going to hate the other one, right? That is resentment. Or he says, if you, if you don't trust God to take care of everything that you need, and you really think it's all about you, then you're going to be full of all kinds of worries and, and anxieties and so on, right? And, and one of the things we talked about last week is how... Um, in love, all of the virtues just kind of support each other, and that they're all interrelated. The, the problem with that is, is that that's also true of all of the vices of worldliness. All of the vices of worldliness connect with each other and feed off of each other. So it's not just one that you're suffering from. They lead to each other, and they support and strengthen each other. So if you're feeling a lot of anxiety— you're naturally going to feel like there is something not right going— something not right about your life, which is going to make you feel restless. And when you're feeling like something's got to change, you're feeling restless, and things aren't changing fast enough, you're going to feel a certain amount of desperation. When you're feeling desperation, you tend to just want anything to change at any moment in some kind of way, and so you'll just do whatever's right in front of you, and so you'll find yourself given to compulsion, right? And then when you try to focus on something to be productive, what you're going to find is that you're really distracted, and compulsive, distracted people have lives that aren't going the way they want them to, and so they feel like somebody's got to be to blame, but it's certainly not me, and so some kind of resentment is going to rise up in you, either towards your spouse or your parents or the government or for people who have any kind of religious faith, oftentimes it's God. In fact, for most people who don't have any religious faith, they still find a way to be resentful towards God. And that's going to lead, I mean, resenting like somebody who's not even responsible for something gets really tiring and your life isn't changing and so you get weary. The kind of weariness that isn't helped by rest. You know what I'm talking about? And when weariness isn't helped by rest, it makes you anxious that something isn't right. 
And so there's this cycle, and it just feeds off of itself. And these are all the idols. They're all the symptoms of what Jesus said. These are the symptoms of worldliness. These symptoms come from not being able to spiritually see that we have two masters, right? That's in Matthew 6, 19, where he says, he says, your eyes in relationship to your body are like the lamp of your whole body. And what your eyes can see will benefit your whole body. And what your eyes can't see, you know, you're, you know, if you can't see and you run into something, your whole body, it's not your eyes that pay the price, it's your forehead, right? Or it's your toe that you stub. He says, spiritually, it's the same way. If you can see what's really there, if you can see how God sees, that's light. And your whole body, that is your whole life, spiritually speaking, will be full of that light. It'll benefit from all of that. But if it's darkness, that darkness is going to be a really great darkness. And here's what determines sight. He says, you can't have two masters. The most fundamental thing to seeing spiritually is there are two different ways of looking at the world, of being in the world, of believing toward the world. One is that God is God. You are a creature. He is the Redeemer. You are in need of redemption. He is the truthful one. You are the one who needs to learn about the truth. Or what he calls the God mammon. And mammon is just a word he uses to make all the stuff of the world that doesn't acknowledge God like a person. So that he can make it a god. And so he's like, this is all a god. It's a master. It rules you. It defines you. It tells you where identity is. It directs you. It's a god. And if you try to serve both of these gods, it's not going to go. Right? And he says, so what you need to do is instead of worrying, he says a few verses later, he says, this is what you do. You seek the kingdom of God, his kingdom, and his righteousness. And if you seek those things, everything else will be added to you. Right? Now, the two words then that Christians have known for 2,000 years that we have to reintroduce to ourselves every once in a while are these two words, discernment and sanctification. Discernment is essentially the ability to tell the difference between things in a way that's helpful, okay? What's the negative version of that when you separate things that aren't supposed to be separated on bad principle? We call that discrimination, right? So discernment is dividing things that should be divided, Right? So you can taste two wines and one's better than the other. And we used to say that person has a discriminating palate, but now we just use the word discriminating negatively. Right? So, for, for example, in terms of racism, right, we would say, oh, well, that you've got a black person and a white person, there's a difference. But so you see what God would say in the scriptures is all human beings are made in God's image. Skin color is ancillary. Having the divine image is fundamental. Therefore, separating how you treat two people on the basis of something ancillary rather than something fundamental is fundamentally wrong. It's the wrong kind of distinction, right? But what Jesus is saying is the, dis- the distinction of good versus evil, true versus false, right versus wrong, right? Worldliness versus godliness. Those kinds of distinctions are, f- are fundamental distinctions and absolutely critical for us to find ourselves and to know who we're meant to be. And if you aren't willing to allow discernment to find your spiritual eye for God to inform how you should see. And for the first step in that informing is you can't have two masters, and the only way not to have two masters is to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness with everything you've got. You can't discern, and if you can't discern, you can't see. And if your eyes full of darkness, it's going to be a really great darkness in your whole life. Does that make sense? And then the second word is sanctify, where Jesus says in John 17, I sanctify myself because I'm no more of this world. He says about Christians, they're more, no more of this world than I'm of this world. Now, that didn't mean that Jesus wasn't part of creation. He came into creation as a real human. In that sense, he was in the world. But the world has its own God-denying ways. 
That's what Jesus calls the world. When he says the world, he doesn't mean creation. He means all that is in creation that functions as though God isn't there. Creation separated from the creator. Right? And he's like, I'm not of that at all. And the people, he says, who I'm redeeming, they're not of that at all either. That is, they're set apart. They're different. They're different in a really fundamental way. And so you have to be set apart away from mammon, the god of worldliness. You have to be set apart to Jesus, God's Christ. Right? Now, that's always terrifying a little bit because um, we're afraid that if we give up on the world and using it the way we want to and we really turn to Jesus and allow him to define all these things, that we're going to essentially miss out. That's what everybody believes. And that's why there's all these encouragements in the Bible where Jesus says, that's not true. If you follow me, if you come to me, you cannot fail. Because it's all gift from God. You're depending on his mercy, his graciousness, his own generosity. You don't fail if you give yourself to that. It's not possible. That is the lie. The idea that you'll give yourself to Jesus and you'll lose. That is the lie mammon tells about Jesus. It's not the truth about Jesus. And therefore not the truth about you. Does that make sense? And so related to this in... In Isaiah 61, which is the subtitle of the book, right? He says, not only in the time when the Messiah comes and changes the lives of people, not only will they be lifted out of their victimhood, that he'll bind up the brokenhearted and those who have been hurt, he'll comfort, and that he'll give them a crown of glory instead of, instead of a, like, a bed of ashes. But he, he basically, he says, no, what's going to also happen is they're going to be so raised up into something substantive that they'll be referred to by other people as oaks of righteousness, And people will say, these people were planted to display the splendor of God. And that's that's what we'll look like to people. Right? Now, the reason why we're doing this whole series is because I don't I just don't think we believe that. I don't I don't think that you you possess that truth. I don't think I do. That God's plan for you. Is not your, not you become wealthy. It's not if you, if you tithe, you'll get a hundredfold back and then you can buy a Mercedes. That's not his plan for you, right? His plan is not that everybody would adore your name, right? He said, um, you're no, nobody's higher than their teacher. If they hated me, who are they going to hate? You, right? That's not his plan for your life. What his plan for your life is, though, is that people will, some, will someday, now or later, you know, more later, less now, but increasingly look at you and say about your character, your spiritual substance, that person's like an oak tree. You know those huge oak trees that stand in the middle of fields? They're immense. That's you. You're that. And that is part of your heritage. That's part of the gift of salvation. The gift of salvation is not just forgiveness of sins, the taking away of guilt, a future life with God in heaven. It's not just those things. Just as much as those things, it is the the transformation of a broken human being into an oak of righteousness. Now, so we got to figure out how, to, how do we get, in what part do we play? How do we believe and walk with God in such a way as to get there from here? And um, in the book, it's broken into two parts. One is that there's four marks of godliness or spiritual substance, that if you, if you grow in these four things, you're going to get there from here. One is self-sacrificial love, having the mind of Christ, virtuous freedom, and keeping in step with the Spirit. 
Um, last week I tried to do both of the first two of those, but it turned out that that's insane to go at that rate. And so this series is actually going to be 11 weeks instead of seven, and I'm going to talk about the mind of Christ again today. Um, but we'll talk about those four. And then there's four practices that if you really give yourself to these practices, they will increasingly lead towards you growing in these areas. And those are um, welcoming the ordinary, that is your real life rather than some other life, escaping diversion, embracing discipline, and being part of the formational community of the local church, the one with real human beings in it. Because the community that we live in is going to be the world. The Bible says everywhere that, like, there is this non-conscious attitude in the city in which we all live. And so Jesus created a counter-community that is formational, in which we grow to be like Christ, so that we can go out into the other one and be like Christ. Does that make sense? We'll talk about that second to last week. So I want to review for just a minute what, what self-sacrificial love is all about and some things we talked about last week. And you might say, well, Nick, I listened last week, and my response is this. You, spirit, in terms of your character, you only possess what you've mastered, not what you're familiar with. If you've been a high point for a while, you've heard me say this before. There is, I don't know what you're talking about, familiarity, boredom, and then mastery. And we've got to get through boredom to mastery. And so I might say something, you'd be like, I'm, I'm almost bored. And my answer is great. Because we've got to get through boredom to mastery. Because mastery is that when something is happening to you and you need truth A, that truth A doesn't have to come from outside and for you to go, oh, I know that. It has to come up from inside of you at the moment that you need it. And familiarity is not enough for that. Do you understand? Only mastery is enough for that. It has to be part of your character. So at that moment, it comes whoop, from inside. The right thing, the right moment, and the right proportion with the right execution, it's there, right? It has to be mastered. So here's the thing about self-sacrificial love we need to know. One is self-sacrificial love, real truthful love, is what we're doing here. It is the goal, the end of real substantive spirituality. Right? But two, love is not a simplistic thing. Love is the summary of the whole law of God, and it is the queen of all the virtues. And here, here's, what, here's what I mean by that. There's a number of places that summarize it this way, um, but one of the ones we talked about last week is this one in Romans, where Paul says, if you love your fellow man, you, you fulfill the law. Now, if you don't know what the law is, it doesn't mean, you know, driving codes. The law in the Bible is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, good. And within those, within those five books, depending on how you count, there's approximately 613 commandments, including what do you do if you get green mold on leather items in your household? What kind of houses need to have... Um, uh, balconies, like fences on their terraces. You know, just stuff, I mean, wh what do you do if you have a bull that, that has, a, that gourds something, right? And you're kind of like, all right, I mean, I don't have a lot of oxen, you know? But the, the point is, is that love and law actually are intimately related. Love is why we have laws. Right? Love is the motivation and the justification for anything that is rightly a law. And every law is an example of, right, or an application of love. So, for example, um, if you have a, a bull and it gores something, a person, or let's say it gores another cow, what do you do with that bull? According to the Torah, the law, the 613 laws. Right? That bull becomes dinner. Right? Why? 
Because if you know that he does that, if he's the sort of guy that like gore stuff, you can't have a gore around. You know what I mean? Why? Because you have neighbors, and, and you have neighbor's property, and it's not loving to have a gorer going around, even if you've got him in a pe- fence, because he could get out of your fence, right? Or, like, if you have a leather item, and it has, like, a green mold on it. Now, that sounds like it's a little—I mean, really? And, like, depending on the mold, whether it's red or green mold, you have to burn it or wash it or whatever. Like, why? what does that have to do with love, right? And the answer is, is that mold creates spores, Spores spread through the air, and if you don't, if you don't burn the green mold in your house, it's going to be in your neighbor's houses next week, and it's going to be in their neighbor's houses the week after that, and it's not loving to destroy all the leather, leather items in all the houses of all your neighbors. It's not loving. So you got to destroy the leather item. See, every law in the Bible, every commandment in the Bible, in the mind of God, in the situation we find ourselves in, is an example of what the loving thing to do is. Which is why Christians don't buy into the idea that sometimes love trumps biblical commandments. There's no such thing. The biblical commandments are love. They are loving. They're an example of what love looks like in a given situation. And so you can't trump love with love. That's not how it goes. You see. Now, it's, it's more difficult than that because love is not only the basis for the laws, it's also, what, it's also the hub of all the virtues. Like, people talk about whether or not love is a feeling or an action. It's neither a feeling or an action. Love is a virtue. And when virtue, a virtue is a strength of character, when love is built into your character as a strength of your character, it will produce feelings and it will move out into actions, but it's neither. It is a virtue. And it is the hub and queen of all the virtues. What I mean is this. We talked about this a little bit last week. All virtues are intimately related with each other because they, they move from and are built upon each other. We talked about this somewhat last week, that tolerance requires friendliness. Friendliness requires honesty. Honesty requires justice. You can go round and round on this stuff. And that if you take out one virtue— they all kind of get out of proportion so that what virtue really looks like is kind of like a bicycle wheel, right? You've got this wheel and you want it to be perfectly round and perfectly flat this way so it'll roll, right? In order for that to happen, it has to have a hub and it has to have spokes. And the spokes have to be in the right position and in the right tension with each other. And when you have a hub and the right spokes and the right tension, you have the perfect wheel and the wheel rolls. Do you understand? Okay. The rollingness of the wheel is the effectiveness of our love. The hub of the wheel is the virtue of love, that we know that we must love, that love is motivating things. But love is one of those things. There is no direct love. Love is expressed through one of the virtues. So if I say, um, go over and love so-and-so, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going I'm to hug them. All right, maybe, right? But what you're going to do, actually, is you're going to use another one of the virtues, right? So one way to love people is just to be cheerful around them, to not make them responsible for your happiness, to take personal responsibility for your own happiness and your own attitude and not expect other people to be burdened with it, right? Yeah, things are going wrong in your life. Yeah, well, you know what? There's more going on than just you, right? You know, it's, it's not inauthentic to put on a happy face, Right? Cheerfulness is a virtue. It's one of the ways we love people. It's one of the ways we don't dump everything in our life on them. That's loving. Right? That's, now, that's not the same thing as hiding, and you can talk about how every virtue can become a vice, right? Friendliness is the same way, right? 
friendliness is a thing. So one way, like for example, in the last couple of weeks, there's like 75 or 80 more people at High Point. I don't know why. It might be some people coming more often. We don't really know. But like, we need to be friendly to new people, right? Which means, what would lo- what, how do you love a new person? Well, you would love them through friendliness. And it turns out that like, every way you love anyone— I'm really good at dropping this. Any way you love anyone is motivated by love, but it has to go through another virtue. Do you understand? And so what that means is, is that love finds its full expression as the hub of the right relationship of all the virtues to each other, which is nearly infinitely complex, which is why it is profoundly amazing that we call God the God of love. Now, it's, it's fairly common to hear people when there's controversy, whether political controversy or religious controversy or whatever kind of controversy, you'd be like, you know what, why don't we just love each other? Can't we all just love each other? If we all just loved each other, it would all be just so much easier, right? Which is just, that, on, on a certain level, that makes sense. Because you've had empathetic feelings, of, like, being positive towards others. And, you know, like, if we all just, like, kind of, like, lived in that, wouldn't that be better? And the answer is no. It would be terrible. Empathy destroys all kinds of things. Because empathy is an instinct. I don't know if you realize this. Empathy isn't a virtue. Compassion is a virtue. Empathy is an instinct where you have a sense that the, another person is like you, which then can lead to all kinds of other feelings, like, I would like to be— they would like me to treat them like I would want them to treat me, right? Which is, that, that would lead to virtue. So empathy can lead to that, but it's also an instinct. So for example, if somebody's right in front of me, and they are really sad, I feel really sad with them, because I'm, I'm feeling empathy. That's psychologically healthy, right? But what if they want me to help with their sadness, to give them something that belongs to somebody else who isn't there? You see, I'm not instinctually programmed to feel empathy for people who aren't right in front of me. It's one of the limitations of my humanity. So I'm, I'm prone to take from that other person and give to this person who's right in front of me whatever they want, because empathy will drive me to do that. It's only if em- my empathy is informed by virtue that I can look at the person in front of me, that empathy can enliven my virtuous attitude towards them, and I can give them what they truly need which may be a resource that belongs to me. It also may be the truth. It could be any number of things, you see? And so there is, there is no way to simplify life and say, well, let's just love each other, and then we won't have to argue. But most of our arguments are arguments about what the loving thing is. Because love is not the dictates of the feeling of empathy as an instinct. It is whatever is actually in the true good of another person. Which is love moving out in the right relationship of all the virtues towards their condition. Now, if that's the case, then love is not the simplest thing in the world. It's the most complicated thing you can possibly do. Which is why we pretend sometimes that, like, young people can be the most loving, and they're going to change the world. Love people—young people are terrible at loving. They have all this passionate intensity, but it's, it's not the integrated wheel. The hub and the spokes, and they're, they're not all put together in per- perfect tension with each other. It's older people that should, should be the best at loving, who over the long—a long life have, like, learned what love is in relationship to the true virtues, and how they work together, and what another person really requires, and how people develop over time, and what you people really need need from you and then giving them that thing that they really need. 
right? And so what that also means is this. How do you figure out what the loving thing is? How do we get better at loving? I mean, once you realize what love really is, what should dawn on us is that we're all pretty terrible at it. And yet it's the most important thing. So what are we going to do? And so, so the biblical answer is that you have to at least be aiming for it. You know, in archery, archery is a very sensitive sport. You're off by a little bit and your arrow goes flying this way. But if you're aiming right at the very center of the target, you're going to be off because it's archery, right? It's not perfect. But you're going to be less off. And God doesn't actually require of you to be perfect in all loving, right? Only he is that. What he does require of you is in faith, as best as you can, as informed by Christ, to see Christ at the, as the very center of what it means to really be loving, and always aim for that bullseye. So when the arrow of your love actually hits here, it's a heck of a lot closer than it would have been. And over time, hopefully you'll get better at spiritual archery, and your actions that you hope are loving will get closer to that bullseye of Christ and the character of Christ. Does that make sense? Now, some people get confused about the idea of having the mind of Christ. Because it sounds like what that means is, is that we're supposed to have the intellect of God. And that is not what having the mind of Christ means. You're never going to have the intellect of God. I know some of you are smart and you think you're really close. But you're not. Okay? And um, what it means is, is that you can know someone who is your intellectual superior well enough to know what they have a mind to do. And to know what sort of person they are. So to put it in Jesus' terms, to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. What he has a mind to do in his kingdom, right? And his righteousness, what he has a character to do. You can know that. So my wife and I have been married for a while. And um, she probably knows me better than anybody else on, on planet Earth. And yet she cannot participate in my mind. She just, she can't. There's no way for humans to do that. I mean, Solomon says in the Proverbs, in the Bible, that like, you know, when it, when it comes right down to our own suffering or our own internal thoughts, you're alone. You can only share what you can put into words with another person or what they can somehow feel, right? Which is one of the reasons why empathy can be a great thing. But you can know someone's character. And you can know what they have a mind to do. If you ask my wife, okay, in this situation, what would Nick do? With like 95% accuracy, my wife would just, she would just know. She'd be like, oh, Nick would do this. Nick would do that. Nick would say this. Nick would do this thing. Just, and she'd be right almost every time. Because I have a stable character. And she knows me. And she doesn't know all of my mind, but she knows what I have a will to do. And what I have a mind to do. And that's what it means to have the mind of Christ. To get to know what he has a, a will in mind to do and to get to know his character. That is to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And you can be formed in that, even if you'll never have the intellect of God, which you won't. But that knowing the mind of Christ, what he has a mind to do, what his character is like, is that spiritual sight that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6. That if your eyes are full of light, your whole body will be full of light. That's the light he's talking about, the light of, the, of Christ Right? Of his kingdom and his righteousness. And you got to have that. And so, so how, do you, how do you do it? Now, 
what, what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, which is his long, the longest Bible discussion on the mind of Christ, is he says this. He says, however, we, that is we who are the people who are teaching the gospel, that is Paul and other preachers, he says, we do speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. Now, the word this age is, is tantamount to other biblical authors when they say worldly or world. This age, like this time period, like the kind of way people think apart from God. He's like, people of this age don't see it as wisdom, but it is wisdom nonetheless, right? No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory, not his glory, but ours, before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen no, nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, who's ever heard that last verse before? Right? And usually when people talk about that, they, they say that it's referring to heaven, right? Because heaven is going to be so great that no eye has seen or ear has heard or mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Is that what the verse is about? No. It's about what comes right in, for, right in front of it. If people had seen the wisdom of God— they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. They would never have crucified Christ, the wisdom of God incarnate. If they would have had the wisdom of God, that wisdom that God has destined for your glory, they would have seen Jesus as the Christ that he is, and they would have never laid a finger on him. They would have, they would have worshipped him. They would have followed him. They would have believed in him. And they didn't. And so they crucified him because the thing God had prepared for those who would be willing to love him if you are in the worldly mind, if you, if you think like the rulers of this age, you can't see it. Nobody who thinks like this age can see or hear or even conceive in their mind what God has prepared for those who love them. That is, they can't see what love is at all. Because the ultimate production of the love of God is his Christ. The love of his, of his redemption, of his salvation, of his truth, of his self-revelation, all shown in Jesus. It is the absolute culmination of his love. It is what he is prepared to give in love, and it's what he's prepared for those who would love him. And if we think like this age, that is the age ever since the fall, where creation separated itself from the creator and doesn't want to think like God, doesn't want to act like him, doesn't want to follow him, if we think like this age, we're just, you can't see it, right? And then the next verse is he says, But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except his Spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received a Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. So think about it this way. If nobody really can know exactly what you're thinking but you, right? Then what is the only thing that really, really knows exactly what you're thinking, right? Well, your spirit, like your consciousness, like your internal life, right? That there's like the you inside of you that knows everything you're thinking, right? It kind of almost feels like there's another person there, you know? Depending on if you're taking your meds too. And so, and so what... What he's saying is this thing, this, this ultimate action of God's love, Jesus, 
This wisdom that the Father has had in ages past and has kept hidden from those who didn't want to know it, but has revealed it for our glory, those who would open themselves to know it, right? That that has come in Christ, but it's revealed to you by his Spirit. That is, the reason that you believe in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, isn't because you're a good person. Right? And it's important to realize because what God says all through the Bible is the reason we don't know what we should know about love, truth, and virtue in God isn't a cognitive problem. It's not a mental problem. It's not that we're not smart enough. It's not that we don't think it through clearly enough. It's a moral problem. There are things we don't know because we do not want to know them. Right? And, and that is, that is an insurmountable difficulty Because if somebody's ignorant, you might be able to teach them If somebody doesn't want to listen, you're stuck Right? And so what the Bible says is that Therefore, if you know this If you have come to receive God's love and love him back If you've come to see the wisdom of his Christ You, you know it It's come to you by his spirit And what that means is that the very thing that, that will convert your heart Or could convert your heart Or what has converted your heart Is the very same person Who is the mind of God itself It is the spirit who is, who is with God In his very knowledge of himself It's like your own spirit within you That is, it has the mind of He has the mind of Christ this, The mind of the spirit is the mind of the Father The mind of the spirit is the mind of Christ And that spirit is in you if you have come to Christ, which means you have in you the image of God in Christ and the Spirit of God that has the mind of Christ, and it's yours. So that, and you can read the last line, that we might understand what God has freely given to us. Because it's all of grace, it's all a gift. Now, there's two, there's two epistles in the New Testament, Ephesians and Colossians, that are right next to each other in the Bible, and they're very similar in what they teach. Colossians is a little bit shorter. And they both have a verse almost just like this, where the Bible says, you, that is you Christians, so if you're a Christian, this is you. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, right? Do you see it? Just another way of referring to worldliness. Your former way of life, apart from knowing God, to put off your old self— which is being corrupted by its, its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitudes of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, there's a lot in that passage. But there's two main things that we need to see. One is, you see, have you ever heard anybody say, salvation isn't just about the future. It isn't just about heaven. It's about right now. It's about having like an eternal kind of life now, right? Okay, that's true. It has a correlative bit of bad news with it. That's also true of damnation. Damnation is about right now, not just the future. You see, salvation is about right now. That is, in Christ, if you tr put your trust in him, God declares you righteous in Christ. He wipes away your guilt. He puts aside his wrath. He counts you as his child. He gives you his spirit. He adopts you. Right? He does all these things, and he begins to forge in you the character of his Christ. Right? And there's this transformation. The opposite is also exactly true. If we don't come to Christ, and we stay in the wisdom of this age, 
then our guilt and our sin and our loneliness and our separateness and our brokenness and the damnation we deserve and all of that remains and we go through a destructive process now. We lo- we're, you're losing your, you're not just going to lose yourself then, you're losing your, your very being, your very self right now. Because to the extent to which we're living in the old self, to the extent to which we're living in that old way of life, right, he's saying that in your heart, what the Bible often calls the flesh, are these deceitful desires. They're sinful desires, but because nobody wants to believe that they're a bad person, they have built into them a description of why if you do that bad thing, it's fine. That you're still a good person. That is, they're desires that are deceitful. So they want you to do something that's unloving, and they explain why that unloving thing is loving, and that you're really a good person if you do it. And those deceitful desires are doing something to you when you obey them. That is, you are being corrupted. Right now, every time you give yourself to the old life, the old way, the wisdom of this age, the the desires that want to deceive you, you are being corrupted. You're losing yourself. You're losing what you were created to be because it says that in the new life in Christ, it requires a complete new attitude of mind, which is realizing that you were created to be like God. Not in every way, but in a very specific way, in true righteousness and holiness. That is actual love. That in everything you do, that perfect wheel of virtue with the hub, truly righteous and holy, full in every moral and spiritual sense of being, will be full in you, and that's what you were created for. And if you don't put on that new attitude of mind, you will give yourself to the old life, and you will obey its desires that will deceive you, and it will progressively corrupt you. Right? Which is interesting because in Colossians, he says it just the opposite. He says, you need to put away all these things, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off the old self with its practices. See the same language? The off with the old self, on with the new self, same thing. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. See the same stuff? New self. But see here? What does it say here? Remember? See it? Being corrupted versus being renewed. That is, if we put on the old self, that new attitude, that putting on the attitude of Christ, listening to the Spirit that has the mind of Christ that is in us through faith, that when that happens, there's this new self, and it's being renewed in the image of his Creator. Now, one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible is Genesis chapter 3, which if you don't know much about the Bible, that's when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree and fell in the garden, that whole bit. Okay, I don't have a lot of time to talk about this, so it's going to be the quick version. It's really difficult when you think about that because both God and the serpent that Christians have forever seen as Satan, both tell the humans what will happen if they eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said, don't eat it. God says, in the day you eat it, you'll surely die. And the serpent says, you won't surely die. In fact, God knows that if you eat it, you will have the knowledge of good and evil, and you'll be like God, right? Now, the question is, which one told Adam and Eve the truth? 
Now, see, here's the interesting thing. You see, what Satan told them was a fact, but it wasn't the truth. And what God told them wasn't a literal fact, but it was the truth. Right? Because when they eat the fruit, do they just drop dead like it was poison? Right? And the answer is no. They don't. And are their eyes awakened so that they can see good and evil? Well, yeah. I mean, they start making clothes because they think being, being naked is not okay, and they separate from God because they feel guilt. Why do they feel guilt? Because they broke a truthful law. They did something that was evil, and they knew it. Right? And in that sense, are they like God? Knowing good and evil? Well, in a way. So who told the truth, right? Except for this. Do you know what happens in the very next chapter, Genesis 4, in the Bible? If you know, just shout it out. What happens? Yeah, it's Cain and Abel, right? Cain kills Abel. So here's the question. When we got the knowledge of good and evil, did we really become like God? Did our knowledge of good and evil, was it really like his? Because here's what really happened. We got the knowledge of good and evil, and we did evil. That's what happened. The very next chapter, we start killing each other. The very next chapter, this guy Lamech, he's like, and he's like a son of Cain. He's like, listen, my two wives, because he's already invented polygamy because he thinks that'll be fantastic. This guy who has the knowledge of good and evil, he goes, the next person that ever wounds me, like if they hurt me, I'm going to kill them. And I have killed somebody for wounding me because that's justice. No, Lamech, that's your justice. That's not justice. You see, what happened is, is that there's something about the knowledge of good and evil. You can't just take it. It's like love. You can't just do it. There's something about human character, about love, about true righteousness and holiness. It has to be forged. It can't be taken. I mean, think about how preposterous the idea that you could eat a fruit and you could really know good and evil. Like, it's magic. I mean, apparently, God can create fully formed humans. In the story of Adam and Eve, we get basically Adam formed as an adult male. Now, I mean, we would think that if anything has to be developed, it would be a baby into a human. But apparently, God can sort out the neurons. But apparently, what he can't, or at least won't sort out, is how we become fully human. How we become like God in true righteousness and holiness. That is, it has to be forged, and it has to come in a certain order. Right? Now think about this. What is the first moral and spiritual lesson of having the knowledge of good and evil so that it would produce good rather than evil? Right? And it's this, it's this one, it's the one that God was trying to teach through that tree. You see, because either you can try to steal all of the knowledge of good and evil and have it all disproportioned in your mind and it actually destroys you and destroys everybody for thousands of generations, because we still have that knowledge of good and evil. How are we doing? How are you doing with it? Basically hurting everybody around you, Right? It didn't—we've been dying ever since, and we've been killing each other partly based on our self-righteousness and our misuse and contortion of the knowledge of good and evil that seeped into us but wasn't forged in us. But what God was saying was, no, it comes in order, and the first 
The first point of the knowledge of good and evil is you have to trust the trustworthy one. If you can't or you won't trust God, you can't ever have the knowledge of good and evil formed in you in order. Not in order. Not spoked outright. It won't be a wheel that spins. Not one that rolls. You'll get a square wheel and they don't go. You understand? You see, when the Bible says when we come to Jesus, we become these living sacrifices. But the only way we can become the kind of living sacrifice that really honors God, that He appreciates and approves of, and that we find our true life and freedom in. Because remember, in the book of Galatians, Paul says that this is, is not a question about you being good enough. This is a question about your freedom versus your slavery. Sin is slavery. True righteousness and holiness in love is freedom. This is about whether or not you will be a slave or you will be free. Everything related to your freedom is at stake in this, right? And he says the only way this can happen is if you see the pattern of this world and you are unconformed to it. And instead, your mind, the way you see everything, is transformed. And then you'll be able to see what is what, what God's will is. Do you see how that you don't have to know everything is mine. You just need to know what he has a will to do. And that'll start to change things really dramatically. And some people will not approve of you. And hopefully people here will. Let me give you a quick example before we finish. I have a friend who owned a hotel in Madison. And when he first bought the hotel, two of his clients were um, the Wisconsin Orgy Association, and that's not their real name, but that's what they do, and, the, and Planned Parenthood. If you haven't been around evangelicals very much, we're not huge fans of Planned Parenthood. Um, and so the, the Wisconsin Association, what they would do is they'd buy out a whole hotel for two days, they'd pay you almost double what you would normally charge, and then none of the hotel staff has to work. So you have virtually no expenses, right? And you don't even have to be there. And then they do what they do, and then you just come back and clean up afterwards. And it's, it's an opportunity to make an enormous amount of profit in a couple of days. And in the hotel business, the, the, the profit margin is pretty slim. But he was like, you know, I just don't think Jesus wants me doing this. I, I don't think that's what my hotel is for. My hotel is for hospitality. It's for travelers, but it's not for this. And so he decided to say no to this group. And now, that is not a worldly thing. A worldly thing is like, who cares? You're going to make a bunch of money. What they do is their business. Right? And then he made that choice because, because he wanted to please God and he wanted God to give, add to him everything he needed. Right? And so the other one with Planned Parenthood, he was like, what do I do with the fact that they're one of our patrons? And so this is what he did. Every time they, they rented a hotel room, he would write a check for the full amount to CareNet, the crisis pregnancy center run by Christians. And so, like, he'd show up there, like, every week, and he'd have a check for, like, $84.17. And they all knew what it was, and he didn't tell Planned Parenthood what he was doing. And that wasn't just the profit he made on the room. It was every dollar that he received from them. Because he just, he just didn't want, he didn't want that money on his business. He just didn't want to participate with that. So he did the best thing he knew how. Now, did he have to do that? Probably not. I don't, I don't know. A person trying to aim for the center of love with the mind of Christ maybe would have done five or six different things. I, I don't even know what the right answer is. But he was aiming for the bullseye, and I'm pretty sure he hit the target. 
And that's what faith does. Listen, you're not going to be, listen, you're not going to be a fantastic person, okay? You're never going to be like Jesus. That's why, that's why we worship him, because he's awesome, right? But by having the mind of Christ, you can hit the target, but you can only hit the target if you are aiming at the dead center, and you've let go of everything else, and you're seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, and seeking to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, putting off the old self and putting on the new self, to be renewed in the image of what you were originally created to be. God made you. He made the first human beings that every human being would possess the true knowledge of good and evil. The true character of Christ, fully given over time, forged in the right order. And the very first lesson has to be faith. You have to trust the trustworthy one. You have to repent and believe. And one of the first steps of that is always just worship and attempting to obey. And you're going to be bad at it. But you just have to aim for the center of the target every single time. And you will find yourself becoming more loving because you will find your inner self becoming more aligned with the mind of Christ. So as we sing this last song, um, use it for that. Please use it for that. Use the moment of worship. Use that moment of repentance. Pledge your own soul that you only live by mercy. You only live by grace. If God counted your actions, he, it, you'd, you'd be nowhere. But he has forgiven you and, and saved you and helped you and transformed you and adopted you and given you a spirit. And now he wants to give you his freedom and his life. And he wants to forge in you something beautiful, something like an oak of righteousness. A planting of his own splendor in you. And it can only be received by faith. So do that right now. God, as we sing this song, lead us to repentance, lead us to faith, lead us to trust, lead us to put off the old self and to put on the new self, to hope and long for the renewal in the image of our Creator so that the thing that we... The thing that we lament more than anything isn't that we got sick or that we lost our job or that some circumstance. Let our greatest lament be sin still indwelling in us. When we do stuff that we know isn't loving, let our greatest lament be, God, when will I be free of this? Oh, make me free of this now, today, by your Spirit, in the mind of Christ. And God, make us people of spiritual substance.